hearts new mercies, new beginnings. I love 1 John 1, 9. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it begins that we are to confess our sins, right? We can run to him, there are second chances. And he's faithful and he's just to forgive us and give us that family forgiveness. We're very blessed. Well, I love New Year's and I love new sermon series. That's what we're about to do is walk into a new series. You have a handout coming your way. It is a Second Peter series. Before the holidays came upon us, we were looking at 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter, the apostle was addressing a group of churches that were persecuted from the outside, from the world. And it was a wonderful book that gave us perspective on suffering and gave us hope in the midst of suffering, that God uses our suffering for his glory and our good. But now, in 2 Peter, time has gone by and things have changed a little bit in those same particular churches. And it's not so much a focus on the persecution outside the church. Now the focus is on the trials and the dangers within the church. Could you imagine? And so the title of our message today, this overview of 2 Peter, is Poison in the Pew. And don't be offended. I'm not talking about anyone in particular. Poison in the Pew. That was the problem. Peter reminds us that wolves... False teachers in the last days will arise, even from within the church. People will associate with the church. They'll, they'll take the name Christian. And when defection and false teaching and persecution come from within the body of Christ, a serious condition exists, poison in the pew. Well, in this letter, he's going to be a little bit negative, not in the sense of like pointing his finger, but he's going to take a negative perspective on things, and then he's going to take a positive slant on things. So Peter is going to be positive because he is going to encourage us in this book to recognize the grace of God in our lives and then grow. He's going to challenge us this year to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, to be different than the apostates, the false teachers. We're going to see their characteristics. We're called to be different from the world. But then from the negative side, he says, I want to warn you against these false teachers that will hinder your growth with their teaching and their lives. So be encouraged to grow and be warned, be alert. So the purpose of the book is to warn and to encourage. One writer put it this way, to encourage his readers to mature in how they understand and practice God's grace is one of the things he's calling them to do, especially in the face of false teaching that threatens to stunt their spiritual growth. Bad teaching, wrong ideas about God will stunt your spiritual growth. What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. So we have to deal with falsehood. Take it on. And so he's going to give us negative descriptions of false teaching and false teachers because he wants to warn us so we can grow. Now, here is the key passage, I think, of the whole book, at least... In my opinion, this summarizes the purpose of the book. Go all the way back to chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. The last verses of the book, he really just brings it all together. 2 Peter 3, 17 through 18. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but instead grow, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow and be warned. So here I think is the key word. I'm, I'm borrowing a bit. You've got an outline there. Every preacher borrows. I'm borrowing this morning. There's a, a book called The Message of the New Testament. It's a great survey of every Old and New Testament book written by a really good preacher from Washington, D.C., named Mark Dever. And so I'm borrowing his outline. But he said the key theme, and I think he's right, one of the key themes, if not the overarching theme of the book, is certainty. Certainty. There are things that we are to be certain about, and Peter wants to let us know. And so you can see the outline. Be certain of your call. He's going to call us to be certain of our calling and our election, our salvation. Be certain of it, verses 1 through 11. And then he's going to say, be certain of the truth. 
Be certain of the truth that we have preached to you. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. Be certain of the truth. And then he says, be certain of the truth because you can be certain that false teachers will arise and they will come in with a lot of confidence and they will preach a different message. They'll give you false assurance and they will lead godless lives and they'll encourage you to, hey, you're saved. Live however you want to. They'll also say things like, Jesus isn't coming back and God wouldn't judge people. Does that sound like the culture of our day? And then lastly, he says, be certain that God will judge the world. Justice is coming. Vindication is coming for God's people. Rescue is coming. A brighter day. But God's vengeance, God's justice will reign. He will judge the world, including those wolves, those false teachers. And so, can we pray again and, and then read the first 11 verses and then we'll jump right in. Father, we're so thankful that we can have certainty in an uncertain world. We watch the news and it's, it's confusing and it's, it's, we don't know who to believe and it's worrisome. But Lord, you give us so many truths and promises. So we pray that through this series, you will transform our lives. We'll be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We ask that you would help us to be people who are more discerning and able to be alert, sniffing out falsehood, Help us to be people who, in the truth, in your grace, grow. We pray that you would help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, consider the certainty in his words. Look at, let's just read the first 11 verses. Really, my job today is to overview and to highlight verses 1 through 2, but I'm going to take you through the whole book. We're going to jog through it. This is the reading of God's word. 2 Peter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant, there's his humility, and an apostle of Christ Jesus, there's his authority, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted us has granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement or add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, with knowledge, self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and to brotherly affection add love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a lot of certainty and calls to certainty, even in those first 11 verses. We, we live in funny times, odd times. You know, the things that people used to hold with certainty, they now question in our culture. And the things people used to question they now have a certainty about. So, for example, I, the, the author of the, the book I was looking at this week shared a similar story, but I, it's a story that I have. When I was in high school, um, I was a part of a great church that was really feeding into me, and they made it possible for my dad and I to go with the men from this church to the Promise Keepers event, which is a, it's a great outreach, uh, a great event that equips men to be godly men of integrity in their churches, in their homes, and so we, my dad and I were sent. It was a gift. Thousands of men 
mostly husbands and fathers, gathered at this event, at this big coliseum in Minneapolis. Vikings, go Vikings. And we were challenged to be promise keepers, better promise keepers. You know, 50 years ago, every normal husband and father in the country, let alone Christian man, assumed that they should be promise keepers, keep their promises to their wives, keep their promises to their children, to the people in their lives. Men of integrity. Family promises used to be certain. Now, this is rare. We have to have events that remind us to keep our promises. The things that we used to hold with such certainty now are questioned. We used to be so certain that there were two genders. Now our culture questions whether that's even possible. On the other hand, we as a culture are now certain of something which we used to be somewhat uncertain about. We used to be more discerning as a culture. We used to live more examined lives. God's love and acceptance. People used to have great interest in the question, who will be saved? Who does God love? Who will go to heaven? How can you be saved? We used to question that and, and examine that. We, we believed it was the most important question. For centuries, people puzzled over the question, will God accept me? What do I have to do? Now, that's all taken for granted, and our culture says, well, God loves everybody, without even thinking it through. The question is not even on the table for debate anymore. Ask the question, are people sinners? And you'll probably get an answer like, well, hey, I mean, nobody's perfect. God knows my heart. We're all going to heaven. It's that pluralism of our day, right? It's, it's a postmodern culture we live in. There's no absolute truth. Everyone's on their way to heaven. Everyone is loved and going to heaven. It's a pluralism. It's undiscerning. But we're all so certain of it these days. The funny thing is, another funny thing, I think, it's funny but sad, is that in our universities where there's so much knowledge, a, a plethora of information, there is a deep uncertainty about truth. We can't know anything. We can't stand for anything. Everything is questioned. And it's better to not have convictions or to say the truth there's lowercase truth, but there's no capital T truth. We can't have convictions because that's conceited. We can't claim knowledge of the truth. All ideas are equally valid. We can't really know anything. Yet on the other hand, the average person typically assumes in everyday circumstances, in the relationships, that they're never wrong. When you have a knock them down, drag them out fight with someone, you always replay it in your mind, and you're never wrong, right? I mean, is it just me? I'm always right. The other person's always wrong. We have a certainty that we're always right. And so in our time, the things that people used to hold with such certainty are now questioned, and the things that people used to question are now held with certainty. But Second Peter gets us back on the path, brings us into the light, gives us some foundation for certainty. He tells us that we should be certain about certain things. He can only touch on some of them, but here are some of the things we're to be certain about. Be certain of your calling. You can know that you are called of God. You can know that you are saved. Verses 1 through 11. You can be certain of the truth, the gospel, and the promises in the gospel. You can be certain of those things. You can be certain that there are false teachers, that there is falsehood, that there are wrong answers, and that there is false assurance out there. And then lastly, you can be certain that God will judge the world. There is accountability coming, validations coming, vindications coming, God's people, but so is justice and accountability. And we need to believe those doctrines or we'll live an unhealthy, godly life. So let's look at the first 11 verses quickly. Be certain of your call. Look at verse 10. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Be certain of your calling, be certain of your salvation. Verse 10 points us to the first thing, the, the most important thing to be certain of. Be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. Basically, make sure you're saved. Are you a Christian? You can be certain of it. You should be certain. There's nothing more important. Making sure that we are Christians, though, requires that we hold two ideas, that we hold the two ideas. The first idea is, in the outline, God is the one who calls us. God is the one who saves. And the second idea to remember is that when he calls you, 
there is a call on your life. When grace comes for you, it, it's a call on your life to live a different life. You can have assurance and certainty. So we say that God has a call. He has called us. Notice how the first few verses, really the first 11 verses of this, this book emphasize the fact that God has called us. God has graciously, graciously taken the first step, the initiative. Our, our salvation is not self-generated. It is not self-generated, our salvation. This calling, this choosing, this salvation is not self-generated, self-empowered. Peter writes in verse 3, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and his goodness. In his goodness, he called us. We did not call ourselves. Scripture sees man as having great value, dignity, and worth. We're made in God's image. And the same time, the balance is, while we have worth, we're unworthy. While we have dignity, we are depraved. We are portrayed in Scripture as spiritually dead. We're corpses. And so when God calls, he's waking the dead to life. It wasn't me. I cannot take the credit for being here today. Now, yes, I have a free will. I'm a human being. I have human responsibility. I will not go to heaven if I don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I have to believe. Somehow, in the mystery of it all, I'm here believing today because God took the initiative in my life. He called me. It was self-generated. I mean, look at what Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 44. He says, no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. God wooed me when I was running from him. God took the initiative in my life. I was Lazarus, and he said, Lazarus, come forth, and I came to life. I mean, it's the initiative of God. It's in 1 John. He loved us when we did not love him. He loved us when we didn't love him. We love him because he first loved us. Or Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated his love in this, in that while we were yet really good people. Oh, wait, no. But God demonstrated his love in this, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God took the initiative. God gets the glory. The book ends with giving God glory. My salvation, it was unconditional. It was based on his grace. And by his grace, I repented and believed and I'm saved. Are you? My salvation is not self-generated. It's not self-based. We've made that clear. Our salvation is not based on ourselves, our pedigree, our performance, on anything we've done. Peter introduces himself and addresses this in the very first line. Simon Peter here, servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. We have received faith. The faith which these Christians have in Jesus is God-given. It's a God-given capacity to trust. It has been gifted to Jews like Peter and also to the Gentiles. You've received a faith as precious as ours, Peter says, to a primarily Gentile church. This salvation that every believer in the church has is not due to their righteousness, their performance, but because of the righteousness of Jesus, our God and Savior. There's Jesus' uniqueness. He's God and Savior. And it's because of his fairness, his righteousness, his justice that he's made available salvation to all people, all skin colors, all backgrounds, even the Gentiles, even people like me, we're saved by faith alone, through grace alone, not by our works. Paul makes it clear in his epistles all over the place that it's because of Christ's righteousness. His perfect life has been imputed, it's been put into my spiritual bank account. He paid the debt, and then his perfect life was credited to me, Paul says in Romans 3 and 4 and 5. Not because of my righteousness. Paul, in Philippians 3, verse 8 and 9, says, I left behind religion, self-salvation, so that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from keeping the law, but that which is through faith 
in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And so Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you know it. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone can boast. But it's also a salvation that's not self-sustained. We don't keep ourselves saved in a sense, right? It's God's grace sustaining us. Philippians is very clear that when we do anything, it's God at work in us both to will and to do. It's God's constant grace. So finally, our calling is not self-sustained. Our calling, our salvation, it's not sustained by ourselves. God is the one sustaining. He gives us what we need. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge, our relationship with him who called us by his own glory and goodness. We're saved by him. We're sanctified by him, which means we're made more and more like his son. It's, it's his work. It's his spirit working us. We're sustained by him. He grants us what we need to live the Christian life. He gives us the Holy Spirit so we can bear the fruit of the spirit. He saves us by grace, but then he provides us with what we need to grow spiritually. And so if, if we're going to make our calling and election sure, be certain of our salvation, the first thing we must recognize is that God has called us. Salvation is by grace. I'm saved because I look to the objective, finished work of Jesus, not to my performance. And so thankfully, I can have assurance because I'm looking at him and not myself. I remember being religious. Grew up religious. It wasn't until I was 17 that I met Jesus Christ and entered into a relationship with Jesus. But I never had assurance. I was always looking at my performance. Have I done enough? Did I lose it? It's just, it was chaos. It was a storm. False teachers tell us that we can be saved by our works. We can cooperate with grace. We can earn it. We can keep ourselves in God's love in, in the sense of merit and work. But we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Yet it is also God's call on us. Salvation isn't just an initiative, a, sal- a saving, gracious movement of God in our lives, but it's also his call on our lives. Salvation is a call from God, but it is also a call on our lives. It's a call away from our past life, the corruption that he speaks about, but it's a, it's a call to consecration, to set ourselves aside unto God's purposes and to serve him. We've been set aside unto the Lord. It's a call on our lives. So Peter tells us in verse 10 to make sure of something. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. We make it sure. How do we do that? We make it sure by what we do. Now, am I just contradicting what I just said? Listen to what he says in verse 10 through 11. If you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 10 and 11. Apparently, we can make our calling and election sure by the way we live. No, we do not save ourselves. Don't, don't, please don't come to me and say, so you're preaching salvation by works. I just spent the first part of the sermon denying that. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. We don't even sustain our salvation. We don't have the ability. We need his grace. Still, we make our calling and election sure by doing something. In a secondary sense, we gain assurance by putting on these Christ-like qualities in increasing measure. Look at verse 5. Peter tells us to make every effort to add one quality after another. Verse 5 through 7, add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and add to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection for others, and then add on love, the greatest of these. In verse 8 and 9 he says, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus. But if anyone does not have these, if you're not growing spiritually, then you're nearsighted and you're blind and you have forgotten that you've been cleansed from your past sins. We're short-sighted. If we're not growing, 
in our, in our knowledge and our relationship with Jesus. The false teachers, the, the apostates, these unbelievers he's warning us about, um, they don't participate in God's divine nature. Uh, they don't have God's spirit within them. They're not born again. They don't have the spirit in them to help them produce these qualities. They are not growing in godliness. They don't bear these character qualities of our God. Christian growth, though, it does bring Christians assurance on a secondary level. It gives us assurance that God's at work in our lives. Living as a Christian, looking increasingly more like Jesus, helps me to know that I know Jesus. So let me say this. The primary ground for my assurance is the finished objective work of Jesus. I look to Jesus, what he did. I'm not saved because of what I've done. I'm saved because of you, Jesus. Thank you. I've received you. I've believed on your name. That's, I, I look to the blood of Christ. That's the primary foundation and ground of my assurance. But on another level, on a secondary level, there is another ground of assurance. How do I know I'm saved? Well, when you see some fruit. Now, every Christian has a different amount of fruit, and I'm not a fruit inspector. It's not my job to go around and say, oh, not enough fruit. That's between you and God. But is there a change? Is there, is there something happening? Is there a pulse? It's a confirmation to others and to ourselves that we've been born of God. I mean, this is 1 John. This is the book of James, right? There's a dead faith. Even the demons believe the facts. And then there's a saving faith. There's repentance and there's faith in Jesus, and it's life transforming, right? So let me illustrate this really quickly because I know this is, uh, this is controversial. I'm not trying to be. But let's go back to that Promise Keepers event, that conference. Each man came into the conference and they were given, they were required to wear a wristband, right? This was something, this is someone else's idea. I didn't go on my own initiative. The church thought it would be good for my dad and I. They paid our way. The guy even put my wristband on me. It was just all grace. Someone paid for the wristband, provided it, put it on me. As I walked around the stadium, the security guards, they only wanted to know one thing. Was I wearing the wristband? By wearing it, I was not proclaiming that it was my idea or that I'd paid for it or that I'd made it or that I'd applied it to myself. No, it was given to me. They simply wanted to know whether I possessed it and was wearing it. In the same way, we must ask ourselves, is there evidence that God's at work in my life? Do I know him? If we are saved, we are saved because of God's action in our lives. But the action of God in our lives is not without effect. Our lives will give evidence of his work. More and more our lives will be marked by his divine nature. Qualities like faith, and goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, love. We're to abound in good works. Our faith is to work itself out in love, the book of Galatians. We're not saved by those works, but if I'm saved, there will be a change. I like what Martin Luther said. We're saved by grace through faith alone, but not by a faith that's all alone. Not by a faith that's dead. It's just cognitive agreement with facts. Even the demons believe the facts. Have I repented and trusted in Jesus and what he has done for me? Where did, where, we can be certain of our salvation. I'm certain because I've trusted Jesus. But I've also gotten some assurance as I've seen that I'm not who I used to be. We need a foundation, though. The next part of what he says is we should be certain of this truth, the gospel and the message of the gospel. We should be certain of it. Now, the false teachers were trying to undercut any certainty in the apostles' message. These are all fables. You can't believe what the apostles say. You can't believe Peter. In order to be certain of our calling and of our future hope, Peter knows that we need to require a second certainty the certainty of God's truth found in the apostles' original testimony. What they preach, can we believe it? Our faith, our confidence, our hope in Jesus is built on solid ground. Is our faith built on reliable testimony, and is it from God? Again, the false teachers were apparently denying the reliability of Peter's testimony in the other apostles' message. They said these are, verse 16, cleverly devised stories from these apostles about Jesus. 
these false teachers were, were probably not denying the historical life of Jesus. They probably weren't denying his ministry, his death, his crucifixion, or his resurrection. What they were probably denying, though, was that he was coming back. They were denying that he was a king with a future kingdom and that he would come back as a judge. That's what they were denying. They're scoffing at the idea that Jesus would return and judge sin. They viewed Jesus' return, as preached by the apostles, as a fable, a tall tale. The believer's future glory, our vindication, uh, God's justice towards our enemies, restoration of the world, new heavens and new earth, all fables. I hope not. Well, Peter says, my testimony is factual. These are not fables. Look at chapter 1, verse 12 through 16. Peter assures them that he has seen something. He and James and John and the other apostles have seen historical events. They've been eyewitnesses. You don't have to check your brain at the door when you come to church. You open your Bible. Your faith is reasonable. It's rational. It's reliable. It's historical. It's, we have these four earliest documents, source documents, the earliest ones, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're reliable. And they're written by eyewitnesses. Men who interviewed eyewitness accounts. You should look at Luke chapter 1 sometime. Luke chapter 1. Dr. Luke is very clear that what he is writing in Luke-Acts is historically backed. Eyewitness accounts. He's done the, the investigation. We don't have to check our brains at the door. Peter, along with James and John, had witnessed something on the Mount of Transfiguration. All four Gospels talk about this event Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9. And right here in chapter 1, verse 16 and 18, Peter says, I know that Jesus is coming back. I've already seen a little taste of his kingly glory and the power that he'll return with. I've already gotten a glimpse of it. I've already seen a foretaste, a prefigure of it. I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Look at verse 16 through 18. We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. He's coming. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory of the Father, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We know he's coming back in power and glory. He's going to come back and set up his kingdom. He's going to return, and he's going to put down his enemies. How do we know? We were eyewitnesses of the prefiguring event. We saw his transforming glory, the power with which he'll come. He will come. You know, so he speaks with certainty. He says, I have facts. Unlike a lot of people today, you don't hear Peter saying, well, this is how I look at religion. This is just my opinion. Or, you know, I've always felt that God is this, or I feel that God will do that, or God would never do that. That's what I feel. It's just my opinion. No, he says, this happened. We saw his glory. We saw the glory of a king who will return. I stood on the Mount of Transfiguration where God the Father testified that this is my son. Thumbs up, full approval, seal of approval. I saw the foretaste of future kingly glory, and he is coming again. Peter is simply reporting what the Father himself said about Jesus. He's not relying on his opinion or his interpretation of the life of Jesus. He did not need to interpret Jesus' life or future return. The Father interpreted it for him. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. He is the rightful King. Look at the power with which he'll come again. These aren't fables. Our faith is built on historical eyewitness accounts. Our faith is factual. We can be certain. Our faith is reliable. It's historical. Peter wants us to be certain of the truth. And so he tells us his testimony, that it's factual. But then he goes on, he says, and it's not just something I witnessed with my eyes. This is clearly in line with God's Old Testament prophetic scriptures. This is what God said would happen. Verse, verse 19, really through 21, Peter says, my testimony is, is clearly from the Lord. Because what I saw and what I'm telling you about Jesus and his coming is right in line with the, what the scriptures predicted would happen hundreds, 
thousands of years before in the Old Testament prophets. Verse 19, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to the prophetic scriptures as you do to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. In other words, the day will dawn. The Lord will return. The day of the Lord will come. Jesus will return as king and he'll save his people and judge his enemies. The day will dawn. The prophetic scripture said so. Again, this isn't my opinion or a fabricated story. This is what God said on the mountain to me. This is what the Old Testament scriptures, written by men, but men who were carried along and guided by the Holy Spirit. Verse 21. These are men who wrote, but they were carried along sovereignly by the Holy Spirit to write exactly what God wanted them to write. So again, this isn't our interpretation. This is God's message. Jesus will have a righteous rule and those enemies of the gospel, they will be judged. And so he moves on in chapter 2, and he says, Be certain that false teachers will rise up, though. You need to be certain of your salvation. You need to be certain of Christ's return. You need to be certain of these things because falsehood is all around you. People are lying to you. There's false assurance given. There are fables told, but not in the name of God. Peter moves from encouragement and encouragement to live for the Lord to warning. Peter introduces and describes these false teachers. He says, be sure of your calling and be sure that you know the truth because you can be certain of something else. False teachers will rise and their teaching will give false assurance and it will lie. There are cults all around us. There's false teaching all around us. We need to be discerning. We need to know the characteristic of wolves so we can sniff them out. At the end of chapter 1, Peter mentioned those prophets that were guided by the Holy Spirit who wrote our scriptures. But then as he starts chapter 2, he says, Now you know there were also false prophets in those days, just as there are false teachers in our day, chapter 2, verse 1. And so he provides us with the characteristics of these false teachers. And what are they like? Well, I guess you could say they're described in two ways, if you want to boil it down. They're spiritually competent. They speak with great authority. Man, they're convincing. And then they're regularly carnal. They're carnal. They're not godly. Their lives are depraved. They're immoral. So they're spiritually conceited. They're competent in their own authority. They speak with authority. And with the authority of speech, they teach heresies, false te teachings, and they reject authority. They ultimately reject God's word because they teach their own message. They deny the prophetic scriptures. They say Jesus won't come, God won't judge. God loves everybody equally. Verse 1, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. And then in verses 10 through 12, he says, they follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and they despise authority. They're very competent in their authority, but they despise authority from outside themselves. They don't like the apostles' doctrine and authority. They don't like God's authority. They cannot be corrected. They're bold and arrogant, it says. They are not afraid to heap abuse even on celestial beings, Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, they do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. I mean, these guys have, they're overly confident. But these people blaspheme in matters they don't understand. So they're confident, but they're full of ignorance. And they are unreasoning animals. And then he says, these false teachers, they, they speak confidently and boldly but the only spiritual authority they'll listen to is their own. And they, they mock anyone else's authority. They mock the apostles' doctrine and the prophetic scriptures. They reject authority. This is a characteristic of false teachers. They're going to add to the word of God. They're going to twist the word of God, like Satan did in the garden. Did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees of the garden? He's mean. He's not very generous. Well, no, God said we could eat from any of the trees of the garden except for one. You've totally twisted God's word, Satan. And Satan's still at work in false teaching today. Cults always add to the word of God. Yes, yes, your New Testament's fine. Well, if you read this translation, 
and if you add the Book of Mormon, and if you read these journals, these, and let the church interpret that for you. You see, instead of getting back to the clear teaching of God's word, what was the author's intention? What was the Holy Spirit saying through the, the writer? We pull scripture out of context, we manipulate it, we twist it, and then we serve it to people and we manipulate their lives. False teachers do that. And then they are regularly carnal. Just look at their fruit. Peter says, we have been born of God, we have the nature of God, we can actually, we can look like our Savior. Now, we, we're not able to do the omnis, we're not omnipresent, which would be pretty sweet as a dad of seven, to be omnipresent, or omniscient, or we don't have those, but we can, we can resemble God's character, his love, his mercy, his grace, we can be self-controlled. Not so the false teachers, they're carnal regularly, it just, this immorality marks their life. Their authority, the authority, the only authority they acknowledge is the authority of their own sinful desires. That's what really rules them. Look at verse 13 through 22. They're characterized as carnal. Verse 13, their idea of pleasure is to carouse and party in broad daylight, reveling in their pleasures while you feast with them. They invite you into their sin and their drunkenness. Verse 14, their eyes are full of adultery and lust. They never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They're experts in greed. They love to use ministry for money. Just call in 1995 and you can have this new prayer cloth. Verse 15, they have left the straight way and they've wandered off to follow the way of Balaam. If you know that Old Testament story, Balaam was in ministry, if you will, for wages of wickedness, greed, religion, is a means to satisfy some people's sinful lusts and to make money. Be aware of people like that. Verse 18, they mouth empty boastful words and by appealing to lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people. Come on. And then verse 19, they promise freedom, license, while they themselves are slave to depravity. You're saved by grace. God's so gracious, so keep on sitting, so grace may increase. Remember Romans 6? Paul says, may that never be. Should we go on sinning so grace can increase? Should we walk all over God's grace, take advantage of it? Hey, you're forgiven by grace. You weren't saved by works, so keep sinning. God will just, it's his job to forgive, it's your job to sin. It's lawlessness. They promote it. Hey, God offers free forgiveness and no life change. That's not what Peter called us to. We've been called by grace, and God's call is on our life now to add to our faith, knowledge, and self-control, to grow, to lean into him and bear fruit. Verse 22, they're like dogs that return to their vomit. Oh, gee, that's not very nice. They're like a sow, verse 22, that is washed and returns to wallowing in the mud. In other words, they've made a profession of faith. They claim the Christian community they associate maybe with the church, but it's clear their, their nature remains unchanged. It's like in 1 John, we know they're not of us because although they were with us, they didn't remain among us. They went off into false teaching. They're like a Judas, associating with Jesus, but unchanged. They return to the vomit. They return to the mud. Unclean return to the unclean. Basically, these false teachers disconnect holiness from salvation in their lives and in their teaching. They boast, it doesn't matter how you live. Do what you want. You're saved. Do whatever you want. This is the opposite of those first 11 verses we read. Peter also provides us with an outcome of these false teachers, judgment. In verses 3 through 12 of chapter 2, he exposes them, and he says they will be judged, though. Judgment's coming. Verse 3, last part of verse 3, their condemnation has long been hanging over them. What a picture. Their judgment's just hanging over them. Their destruction has not been sleeping. Their destruction is ready to rise. And then in verse 4 through 8, it's very interesting. Peter gives three examples from the Old Testament to show how God in the past rescued the righteous but judged the wicked. 
The first example is in verse 4. God judged sinful angels. God is a judge. He's been a judge in the past. Example 2 is in verse 5. God judged the world of Noah's day. He saw nothing but violence. Now, of course, verse 7, or he goes on, he says, of course he rescued righteous Noah and his seven family members. But God judged the world of Noah's day. And then a third example, verse 6 through 8, God judged the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, although he did rescue righteous Lot, who was different from the culture. In verse 9, he concludes, well, if this is so, if God has judged in the past, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials now and how to hold the unrighteous for punishment in the day of judgment. He's done it in the past. God hasn't changed in his character, his promises. He'll judge in the future. The destruction of the false teachers is as certain as those three past acts of judgment that we just recited. So this is a really important warning. After all, the false teachers are giving false assurance. They teach people that they can be called by God and live confidently and carnally at the same time. Never mind godliness or knowledge or self-control or perseverance or brotherly kindness or love. Don't worry about those things. No, Peter says, be certain that you, of your calling and your election. Be certain of the truth we've preached you. And be certain that false teachers, they will mislead people. They'll be like wolves, but that they will be judged. Get off their path. And so he concludes in chapter 3. We can do it pretty quickly. He says, be certain that God will judge the world. God will bring justice. He exhorts his readers, be certain of your salvation from the get-go, because judgment and accountability are coming. This is an unpopular message in Peter's day. The false teachers, they denied a final judgment. They scoffed at it, and it's not very popular in our day, is it? God is love. Love is love. There's no discernment. God would never judge anyone. God will never send people to hell. Men scoff at the prospect of judgment. They shake their head at the idea of God as judge. No, God is love. But look at chapter 3, verse 3 through 4. You must understand that in the last days, scoffers, mockers will come. They will scoff. They will mock and follow their own desires, their evil desires. And they will say, where's the coming he promised? Since, ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Nothing ever changes. He's not coming back. There is no judgment. Live how you want. Do not make the mistake of assuming that because God has graciously withheld his justice, that he always will. The world will not continue forever in this present state. I know we get lulled into thinking, this is how it's always been, this is how it always will be. I can't even imagine a return of Jesus, a rapture, a judgment. I just can't even fathom it. Your feelings and your imagination doesn't determine the future, though, or mine. He goes on in verse 5 and 7, he says, listen, here, let, let's be logical here. Basically, I'll sum it up, verse 5 through 7. God in the past through his word spoke the world into existence along with the waters in creation. He spoke it all into existence. And with those same waters he created, he judged the world with a flood. With that same word, God will judge with fire one day. He'll judge again. Things haven't always gone on as they have since the beginning of creation. God created the world, then he interrupted it with a flood. He's created this world, he'll interrupt it again. But not with a flood. Not with water, but with fire. He's going to renew the world. He's going to destroy the wicked. He's going to set up his righteous kingdom. That's what he's going to do. God created the heavens and the earth. He created the waters. He judged the world with waters. He'll judge the world again with his word. So don't think that because something hasn't happened in your life or in your parents' life, that it never will. Jesus was prophesied to come, and the Jews waited thousands of years for the Messiah. And I'm pretty sure there was someone during those dark ages that said, the Messiah's not coming, but he came. And you can believe that people are saying today, he's not coming again, but he'll come. Verse 8, don't forget one thing. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. You, you think it's taken a long time, but that's not how God sees it. The eternal God does not view time the way we do. 
He's not growing impatient. He's not frustrated. He follows his own timetable, not ours. Jesus will be right on time. Verse 9 says, in the words of the scoffer, well, why doesn't he come? The Lord is not slow in coming, he replies. Why doesn't he come? He's not slow in his coming. Here's why he hasn't returned yet. It's not that he's frustrated or unable or forgetful. It's that he's being patient. He's giving you a second chance. He's giving you today. And today is the day of salvation. He's giving you a chance. He's being patient. God is being long-suffering. He's gracious. He's a judge, but he's gracious. And for anyone who repents, they can be saved. That's awesome. There's still a chance right now. He's waiting for your decision. What a way to start the new year. I can't help but think of what Peter said in the book of Acts, chapter 4. He said in verse 12, Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which you must be saved. There's no one, there's no one else who can save you. It's incredible. So to those who are uncertain of their standing with God today, 2 Peter 1.1, read it over. You can put your faith in Jesus and you can have his righteousness, not your own. Put your faith in Jesus. And to the believers here today, in light of his soon return to deliver and bring accountability, I mean, look at the last part of chapter 3. Verse 11, he says, what kind of people ought we to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of the Lord. Verse 14, so then, my dear friends, since we are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. That doesn't mean perfect. It means people of integrity, confessing your sins, walking transparently with God. Walk closely with him. Confess your sins. Walk, practice his presence. And then we close it up with verses 17 and 18. It, it sums up the whole book. Verse 17, be on guard, be alert, so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he ends with these words, to him be glory both now and forevermore. Amen?